please turn with me to Luke 24. We took last week, traditionally Palm Sunday, to have more of a kind of a Good Friday focus. I look forward to the day when we have our own building. And by the way, our elders are continuing to look. You can pray for us where we can do Good Friday services, but we typically take kind of a Good Friday themed crucifixion and do that on Palm Sunday. And so we did that last week from Luke chapter 23. In just a moment, I'm going to pick up at the end of Luke 23 and verse 50 and read from there all the way through Luke 24. This scene that Luke records in some ways is familiar in the rest of the Gospels, but there are details, especially the central portion of Luke 24, which is unique to Luke. And what Luke records here in Luke 24 is of utmost importance for our faith on this Resurrection Sunday, and in particular what it says about Jesus as the great character, actor, subject, and plotline of the Bible and indeed of all of human history. And so as we gather together today as those hoping in Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, we will look back once again at the story to remind ourselves of what has been done on our behalf, that our faith might be increased, that our joy might grow, and that our Lord Jesus might be honored and glorified. So let's read together in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, down through Luke 24, the entire chapter. I know sometimes whenever someone reads this much public scripture, it is easy to get lost. If it's hard for you to follow along at the pace at which I read, either because I'm going too fast or too slow. A good discipline is just to look up and watch me read, if that's hard for you. And let's try to imagine that this story is true, because it is. And let's look back at what our Savior did for us as we rehearse and remember where our faith came from and where it rests. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And that's the silent Saturday of Holy Week. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And as appeared to Simon, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. We will spend our time today covering the chapter, not in every detail, for we don't have time for that. But because of the kind of literature that this is, this is story, it's important for us to get the feel of the story. And so we will do that, God willing, today. In this chapter, we find that Jesus is the hope of the world. The beating heart of this chapter extends from verse 13 down through verse 35. And while every detail is important, That is the central section of Luke's focus. And Jesus is saying in no subtle terms that he has been the hope of God's revelation. Jesus is the subject of the story of the unified scriptures. And it would therefore not be a stretch for us to say that Jesus is the subject of human history the one upon which human history revolves or pivots. And therefore, as we celebrate today, this day of resurrection, we look back to Jesus, the one who has given us life, the one to whom all human history points. There is one true God. This is one of the central tenets of our faith. And this one true God has chosen to make himself known. He has infinite wisdom and knowledge and could have revealed any number of things to his people. But he chose to give us in special revelation, things that were directly from him and then recorded and handed down to us, he chose to give us these 66 books that make up our Bible. In those 66 books written by many different authors over the span of well over a thousand years, there is one cohesive story which demonstrates that God wrote it. And he chose to make known to us a number of things, but one all-important, central thing. And that is that Jesus Christ, Son of God, became Son of Man. And he kept all the laws that we would not and could not keep, which held condemnation over us justly, and we who deserved the wrath of God, the Son of Man, took it instead. 
bearing our shame and our curse. And then he was raised in power from the dead. And God has now granted him a kingdom which has been initiated and which will one day come in fullness. And we get to participate in this kingdom as renewed, reconciled, forgiven people. Jesus having taken our sin and having given us his righteousness. Of all the things the one true infinite God could have revealed, this was the central thing that he revealed. Jesus. And Luke records for us here in the final chapter of his gospel that very thing. Last week we saw in chapter 23 that because of the fall, humanity has become self-righteous and has sought to self-justify. All these characters and actors around Jesus that led to his condemnation, most importantly the Jewish leaders and officials, priests and teachers, They inherited Adam and Eve's self-righteousness and, like Adam and Eve, sought to self-justify. And somehow, because of the blindness of self-righteousness, missed the provision of Jesus altogether. But that was not the last word. God would have the last word because He sent His Son, the Word, who came to take our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might restore us to God. And now this week, we see these four things. We will start with verses 1 through 12. First, the women at the tomb. The women at the tomb, I think, teach us that our mourning is turned into joy. Sin and death will not have the final word. Our mourning is turned into joy. Sin and death will not have the final word. We saw last week in chapter 23 and specifically in verses 27 and 28 that Jesus' close friends and in particular these women that came to the tomb on Friday evening and then again on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, were deeply sorrowful. They had loved Jesus. They had found joy and meaning in Jesus. Women in the first century were often living at the margins, under the authority and often tyranny of men. And it is of no small note that at the beginning of Luke's recording of Jesus' resurrection, and he begins with the women. Back in this day, in the first century, if women were to come to court and give witness or testimony to an event, they would not have even been heard. They were not revered. They were not trusted. This was an incredibly patriarchal society. And it is a huge issue as we look back at the course of the history of Jesus' church, that whenever the church is established and grows strong, that the rights and treatment of women increases. Luke shows great honor to these women, these close companions of Jesus, 
who were not just committed to him with their minds, who were not just slaves of will, but were committed to Jesus with their hearts. When we look at these women, we look at people who really loved Jesus. They were not just looking for a kingdom. They were not just looking for positions of power and authority. They were not just looking for the shackles of Roman rule to be overthrown. They were not just looking for righteousness to invade the land once again. They loved this man, this man that they believed to be the Son of God. That as they saw him tortured, abused, forgotten, crucified, and laid in that tomb, which was sealed with that large and heavy stone, they thought that it was over. And the one that they loved, the one that had loved them, was dead. This reminds us that as we look back at the course of human history, mourning seems to be the norm. Even whenever we think that things are going to turn out well, so often they turn and our hopes are dashed. These daughters of Jerusalem, which Jesus calls them in Luke 23, 28, they were good and righteous Jews. As he looked back at the story of their people, what did they find as they read the 39 books of the Old Testament? What did they see? What was... What was the common narrative? That even at the high points of their religious experience, the Jews that is, they fell apart again and again and again. And and even their best leaders, like David, were racked by sin and disappointment. In fact, after David, the great king, his son who started so well, became a massive idolater, and after him, the kingdom was split in two, never to be joined together again, characterized almost without fail by unrighteousness, sent off into exile, the temple raided and torn down, the walls of the city in shambles, and even when they come back, it was a pittance of what it once was, these daughters of Jerusalem experienced mourning in their own life and in their national history. And this is because of sin. Sin is more than just breaking some rules. Sin has invaded our existence and brought brokenness and sadness and dismay and disappointment appointment into the human condition. And Jesus represented for these women the hope that this would change. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him do miraculous things. They, they believed that he was the Christ, the Messiah, but he was dead. But out of devotion to him, they came on the first day of the week on Sunday to to anoint his body, to show it honor. And what did they find? Men in dazzling apparel. Some of your translations might say clothes of lightning. These were 
heavenly messengers that came to tell these women that their mourning was turned into joy. And therefore, as Jesus said to his followers on the Sermon on the Mount, which they would have recalled later, he said to the crowd, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus knew that that was only to be true because he would break the curse of sin. He would undo all the sad things and make them new again. Sin and death would not have the final word for Jesus. And sin and death, therefore, will not have the final word for those who trust Jesus. Resurrection. I think that God has placed this group of people, our church family, in Ohio so that we will understand the implications of resurrection. So let's mourn together for just a moment. Who has more miserable winters than us? Nobody, right? I mean, this past winter wasn't even that cold. For those of you who hate snow, you probably were pretty happy there wasn't that much. But it was still cold and kind of damp and dreary. I mean, what's worse than a 39-degree rain in Columbus, Ohio in the middle of January? And even on the days where it's not so cold, what is it? It's gray. God controls the jet stream. And God has decided that the jet stream over our fair city would bring gray skies to us inevitably. It always happens. And yet, what is better than springtime in Ohio? When the leaves come back to life and the grass greens, we've been sleeping with our windows open at night, and I love waking up just as the light breaks over the horizon and you can hear the birds singing. They're back. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. That's pretty good. Resurrection. We see it all around us. The very fabric of creation screams to us that the dead is coming back to life. And this is all because of Jesus who turns mourning into joy because sin and death will not have the final word. One of my favorite authors, Russell Moore, spoke of Jesus in the transition from Saturday to Sunday of that Holy Week. He said, that corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you'd been there to pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you'd lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You would have heard only the thud as it hit the table when you let it go. You might have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself, the wages of sin is death. 
But sometime before dawn on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. The breath of God came blowing into that cave, and a new creation flashed into reality. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, mourning is turned into joy. But the beating heart of this chapter in verses 13 through 35 are these disciples on the road to Emmaus. The story is unique to Luke's gospel. And I believe as Jesus interacts with these disciples, this truth is displayed before our eyes. Our unmet and nagging longings are exceedingly fulfilled. Jesus alone is what and who we need. These two disciples would not have been of the close, intimate company of the twelve, but a larger group of disciples, but faithful to him nonetheless. And on Sunday, this day that we know Jesus was raised from the dead, they're heading to a nearby village named Emmaus. They're sad. Their longings have gone unmet, much like the women in verses 1 through 12, all their hopes have seemingly been dashed. Jesus knew this. And through this story, he demonstrates that he cares for his people, the church. He is with us. He meets us in our sorrow and disillusionment. But he met with these two people in particular because he loved them individually. But they were kept from recognizing him right away. I've already read the story to you, and most of you are probably relatively familiar with it. I think the reason for that is because if they had seen him for who he was right away, they would have had a difficult time understanding what he wanted to teach them. He veiled their eyes and their hearts and their minds in a sense so that they could listen to his words and have their hearts, minds, and eyes opened. So he says to them in verse 17, what is it that you're talking about here on your journey? So they stop for a minute hurrying along to their destination, and they're distraught and sad, and this one named Cleopas answered him sort of with incredulity, don't you know what's happened? You wonder if he was a little bit annoyed with this one who had joined them on the road, most especially because what had happened had rocked their world. It was of utmost importance to them. Cleopas answers that Jesus of Nazareth was a mighty prophet and what he said and what he did. And they had embraced him as such. In verse 21, they had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. But in verse 20, the hopes had been dashed because their religious leaders, these unrighteous blind guides, had led him to condemnation and convinced Pilate to put him to death. And now three days later, or portions of three days later, they hadn't seen him. And yet, verse 22, there was this message beginning to circulate from these women that they weren't sure they would believe, remember this patriarchal society, that, that he was alive. And they were amazed, they were intrigued, but they were not convinced Peter and John, verse 24, had gone to the tomb to see if these things were so, and at least they knew the tomb was empty. That much was sure. And Jesus says in verse 25, and I, I wish we could capture 
the tone with which he said this, the look in his eyes, the, the facial expression with which he said this, I'm not sure I can even really guess. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I don't think he's using biting irony. I don't think he's being unkind. I think he speaks to them with mercy. And so he says in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones. I, I want to think he says this mercifully with kindness and compassion. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, with Moses and prophets, from the beginning of the Old Testament until the end, he opened the scriptures and helped them to see that he was the divine subject. In verse 31, he comes to be with them and breaks the bread. He begins to host the meal. And then their eyes are opened and they see him for who he is. In verse 32, one of the best verses in all the Bible, they say, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They finally saw. Even if they weren't of the most intimate company, the twelve, they had spent a good amount of time listening to Jesus' teaching. Surely he had taught them the Old Testament to a great degree. We see this in other portions of Luke's gospel, that, that Jesus opened even the scrolls in the synagogues and would teach the people. And as good Jewish boys, they had been raised at their father's knee, learning about the stories of the patriarchs and the messages of the prophets, how God would bring salvation to his people through a Messiah. But there was so much that they did not see. And in particular, verse 26 it was hard for Jews to see that salvation, release, transformation, the movement from slavery to freedom would come through suffering. Because that's upside down. That is of the utmost irony. But Jesus declares to them in verses 25 and 26, and then throughout the Old Testament, verse 27, that this is the very fabric of the Scriptures. And for the first time in their lives, and it would never be the same ever again, their hearts burned for they saw Christ, Jesus, their friend, popping off every page. This means that as we come each week to the house of God, which is just sort of a cliche and metaphor. This is not a house of God. We are the people of God. But as we gather together in this place, we are listening week by week to teaching from the Word of God. That's of utmost importance to God's churches. But we hold it in high esteem. But it's very possible that we preach ideas, principles, man's thoughts, and we, we miss Jesus entirely. And wasn't that the case in first century Judea? There was no shortage of teaching. There had perhaps never been a time where the religious teachers of Israel taught more prolifically. 
books were being written that interpreted the Scriptures, sort of like ancient versions of commentaries. There were different schools of Jewish thought that had risen up. Jewish scholarship, in many senses, was at its peak. And yet they missed Jesus entirely. And these first century Jews, Jesus called blind, led by blind leaders. Blind in what sense? Not organically, not physiologically, but blind in the sense that the eyes of their heart could not see. Could not see what? Could not see Jesus for who he was to be. Could not see the promised Messiah for what he was to do. And ever since the garden, humanity has had unmet and nagging longings. A nagging notion that things aren't right. That paradise has been lost. That relationship to God, the one who made us, the one who alone can satisfy us. We don't know what that's like. But Jesus comes to these two weary and sad disciples and shows them that all their unmet and all these nagging longings, they couldn't even quite put their fingers on that he was not just fulfilling them, but doing so exceedingly. And isn't that the message of the gospel, the good news? That God does far more than we can imagine or think. The notion that there is a God who would make such a world, a world that would turn from him, and he knew it. God wasn't surprised by the fall. What God would create a world filled with rebels whose only chance at redemption would cost him everything? What God would satisfy his justifiable wrath upon his own son in order to redeem his created image bearers? Who would do that? Our God would do that. And Jesus came to meet all of our unmet nagging longings, our longings for restoration to God. Not for cars, not for houses, not for perfect relationships, not for perfect health, not for notoriety, not for ego. Our deepest longing that we often can't even articulate or put our finger on is that God restores us to himself. This is the gospel. It would be no stretch to say, in fact, a book has been written on this, that God is the gospel. God is the good news. And what did Jesus come to do? To bring us back to God. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. Jesus' beloved disciple says to us in the opening of his gospel in verse 14, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's stacked grace upon grace, never ending. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And later on, when the disciple says to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus says, I've been with you. You have seen him. Our deepest unmet and nagging longing that we can't even put our finger on is that we need God. And what did Jesus do? We saw back in Luke chapter 23, and when Jesus breathed his last The veil of the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest place was torn in two, thereby signifying that all those who will trust in Jesus have access to God again. Jesus shows us that. And he came to the disciples to show them that this had always been the plan. It wasn't as though Adam and Eve screwed up in the garden and the Trinity gathers together with some of their trusted angels and lightning clothing and says, how are we going to fix this? You know, the, the thing that happened this week with United Airlines where the man is drug out of the plane and he's bloodied and battered and screaming and crying and everybody's got their cell phones out. You can't get away with anything anymore, right, by the way. What was it like for, for the CEO and all of his board to, to get together in an emergency meeting and try to deal with that one? How would you like that? People have got different ideas, and let's try this, and let's put out a commercial, and let's get on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and talk about how sorry we are, but still posture so we don't get sued. They lost like a billion and a half market cap in one day, something like that. It was nuts. How'd you like to do damage control on that one? I think it's a popular notion in evangelicalism that, that sin was a surprise, and God went into damage control. And the best idea they could come up with is that Jesus would have to go down there one day and take on flesh and die, and then God would forgive everybody, and and then it would make it all new and scrub it clean. No. That's why when God comes to the garden to the cursed couple, he immediately spoke words of redemption because he knew it was coming. And that's why when Jesus, at the perfect time, as Paul says in Galatians, when it was time for him to take on flesh, he was ready to go. The writer of Hebrews says at the beginning of chapter 12 that Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross and despised the shame. He was ready because he loves his people and he brings us back to God. Jesus alone is what and who we need. Thirdly, in verses 36 through 49, we find the disciples in Jerusalem, his most intimate friends, the ones who had spent so much time with him, the ones who had the most to gain and the most to lose at the same time. They're huddled together, wondering what they should do. Peter has failed miserably, he who will be their leader. Peter in shame, Peter believing finally what Jesus had said, that he would indeed deny him three times. But Peter and Hope had gone to the empty tomb to search for Jesus, to to see if these things were so. In verses 36 through 49, we find the twelve gathered together. And just as Jesus had met with the two on the road to Emmaus and had been in their company, but vanished immediately as those two now come back to the twelve back in Jerusalem, hurrying back to Jerusalem, Jesus just appears. 
Jesus in his glorified body can do whatever he wants. I don't know, for those of you who are wondering, because I might get this question later, I always get these odd questions after sermons, sometimes that like aren't about the main point at all, but are like these little corollary things, so let me just go corollary for a minute. I don't know if this means that you're going to like disappear and show up wherever you want. Like, I don't know, like, when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down, whenever the world is recreated, and maybe we'll still live in Columbus because the jet stream will change, um, that if you can, like, snap your finger and, and show up, like, in Hawaii or, or, like, Burma, I don't know if that's the way it works. Um, I suppose that we will eat. That's another thing that's going on here. I don't think Jesus ate because he was famished. Jesus ate because he was still human. We find in Revelation chapter 22 that we will be eating there will be fruit that come off, comes off the tree of life that we will eat. So we'll still be human. We'll be embodied people. So corollary finished. But what does he say to them? In the midst of their fear and their disillusionment, verse 36, peace to you. He loved them. He knew their hearts were troubled. And what did he say to them? Shalom. Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus, who was the propitiation for our sins, who bore God's wrath in our place, has brought us back to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. And therefore, with absolute truth, for the first time in history, a human could say to another, peace to you. I can say it to you solely based upon what Jesus did. But Jesus accomplished it. And because he accomplished it, because he tore the temple veil in two and gave people access to God again, taking away, taking away the wrath and giving them access to the one who alone could satisfy their souls, he could say to them, peace to you. And he says to them in verse 88, why are your hearts troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's really me. He shows them his hands, his feet, the scars on his forehead. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we find that a sword, a, a spear had been thrust through his side and left a gaping hole there. Even now, Jesus bears these wounds. We sang about this a little while ago. Rich wounds, yet visible and beauty glorified. By his wounds, we are healed, the prophet said. In verse 41 Luke records that they disbelieved for joy. They were so overcome, marveling at what had happened, this turn of events that they couldn't quite believe it. Then he tells them in verse 44, I've been telling you this stuff. But verse 45, Luke lets them off the hook because he says, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. God had kept them from some of these things. Which helps us understand 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says that, that the human mind can only understand the things of God if God allows them to. This means that because of the fall, we didn't just do bad things, we didn't just fall from grace, but every part of us was affected, infected with sin. Our minds cannot grasp these celestial heavenly, righteous, godly, divinely ordained things unless God allows us to. One of, one of the most beautiful things about redemption is that every part of us comes back to life, including our minds. 
And now that Jesus has been crucified and raised, he opens their darkened, diseased, sin-filled minds to understand how the Scriptures pointed to him, and they would never be the same. In a short while, Luke himself, recording the history of the church in the book of Acts, shows how in Acts chapter 2, Peter the coward, now with courage because of the resurrected Lord, and with opened eyes and mind, saw Jesus in the Old Testament and preached about Jesus to the crowds in Jerusalem, and thousands were converted. Their minds opened to understand and believe. When the apostles got together and when they trained other people to start and lead these churches, what was it that they had in their hands to teach? The earliest documents of the New Testament didn't show up for at least a couple of decades. What did they teach those who gathered with them in their churches? They taught the Old Testament. And what did they teach from the Old Testament? Not how you sacrificed pigeons and turtle doves and bulls and goats and what you did on the Feast of Tabernacles and this guy named Jonah who cursed God and was swallowed by a fish and so forth and so on. They didn't just teach those stories and their bare details. They preached Christ. Their fear and disillusionment from being followers of the one that they believed to be the Messiah was erased in a moment. The one who spoke peace to them, the one who opened up their minds, he showed them that he would always keep his promises and all of his promises will surpass our half-hearted desires. The disciples could not even quite imagine what God had in store for them. And isn't that what God does for us in Christ? He takes us through things that we often would never choose, seasons of disappointment and trial that shake us to our very core. And yet, isn't it the case that as we look back, and especially by faith one day when we have perspective, we'll be able to look back and see that all the things that we thought would bring us the deepest joy, God had something better in store. Isn't that how God works? The disciples wanted a kingdom. As we see by their very confession, they wanted positions in that kingdom. In fact, at the opening of the book of Acts, some people believe, some scholars believe that Luke intended his gospel and the book of Acts to be one continuous story, but perhaps it was so long that they had to break it up into two scrolls. Maybe that's the case. The beginning of the book of Acts, Luke picks up again with the ascension of Jesus where the disciples ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus sort of deflects the question rises up into heaven, the angels, the ones who had heralded his birth and his resurrection, say, don't fret, he'll come back in the same way. Disciples' lives would have lots of pain in the future, but because of the crucifixion and resurrection, they could endure because they believed this singular truth that all the things they thought would be best, Jesus had better intentions. 
And because of these men that Jesus radically transformed, that is why we are here today. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets who believed Jesus was the resurrected Christ, the Savior of mankind. And therefore, like them, our confession is that all of our fears and disillusionments are answered in Jesus. And when he answers those fears and disillusionments, he'll do better than we can imagine. The resurrection promises us that. And so I say to you today, no matter what state you find yourself in, if you are in the pit of despair, or if you are at the height of elated joy, Jesus will do more than you can imagine. The resurrection is the down payment and promise that that is the case. And so I can say to you in very simple terms, better things are yet to come. Luke finishes off this amazing chapter in verses 50 to 53 by recording for us Jesus' ascension. He's the only gospel writer who does this. And I think the message of the ascension of Jesus and the disciples' perspective on it is this. Our separation is replaced with union and expectation. We're not alone. And one day, he'll return to renew all things. So he goes out toward Bethany, the Mount of Olives. He lifts up his hands as the resurrected Messiah, the God who had made them and now saved them, and he blesses them as the perfect high priest. And what is he doing for us right now? His hands bearing the scars of punishment. The one who atoned for our sins is pleading his merits on our behalf. Which means that your lust doesn't define you. Your dishonesty does not define you. Your half-heartedness does not define you. If you have trusted Jesus, your identity is not in your righteous perfection. Your identity is in the righteous perfected one. And he blesses you even now, for he intercedes on your behalf before the Father, and therefore you have vital union with the Father. As Jesus prays before the disciples in John 17, Father, Make them one with us, just as we are one. And what do we want? What do we wait for? We await his physical presence, where he will indeed come once again with a shout of acclamation from angels clothed in lightning, where he will bring his heavenly Jerusalem down to this place, and there will be no more opposition, and no more pain, and no more tears, and no more sorrow, and no more sin, and no more guilt, and no more shame. And our priest and our king will be with us, and we will worship him for forever. He's coming back. The resurrection promises us this. He will renew us. He will renew all things. And the disciples were changed with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God, despite all the opposition and danger, because the resurrection changed everything. And so, our hope, my friends, my beloved friends, is in the gospel of Jesus. The one who died, and was buried, and was raised again. 
Because of the resurrection, our mourning is turned into joy. Our unmet and nagging longings are exceedingly fulfilled in Jesus, who is the subject of God's redemptive story. Our fears and disillusionment are erased. Our separation is replaced with union and expectation. He will not, as Jesus told the disciples, leave us as orphans. I know I've told you several stories about my family's experience recently in adoption, but it, it is our story right now. We're experiencing it. It's very, it's very intimate right now. It's very much part of our experience, and our eyes are still being opened, and our hearts are being changed, and so I'll tell you another story, and with that, I will close. Whenever we... <clears throat> whenever we went to Ethiopia uh, in April of last year, a year ago now, you come to this metal gate, this gray metal gate with walls surrounded by razor wire and broken glass. And uh, you honk your horn, or rather our driver did, who almost killed us several times on the road. And they open the gates. And uh, I'm c- I've gotten out of the car by this point. I'm filming it uh, with my phone. And Whitney and Jack and Sam walk into this orphanage which uh, thankful for a lot of uh, the amazing women there uh, who took care of our boys and kept them alive, uh, literally kept them alive. And uh, Whitney and Jack and Sam walk in over to this little tarp-covered uh, metal frame tent. And, uh, and this nanny walks Abe and Zeke out in dirty, tattered clothes. Um, they are kind of dirty, but they've cleaned them up a little bit. And uh, they're scared. In fact, now that Abe, especially, is speaking English so well, he told me he was freaked out by me because I have blue eyes. He'd never seen somebody with blue eyes before. Um, I could I could show you the video. Some of you have seen it. Um, they 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 let us kind of embrace them, but they look so sad. Some of it was just fear of the unknown. They didn't know us. So we spent a week there, and then we went back in July. Whitney and I did to. Uh, go to court and finalize the adoption. We were there for five to six long weeks. And for our entire time in Ethiopia, both trips, um, I have sad, angry boys. Abe told me the other day that he was so mad so often. And he said, that's why I would lie. And that's why I would get angry, because I was sad. My little one, my three-year-old, who before this week... um, would just sit down on the dirty ground and cry. Just cry because he was so sad. A father who did not love them, who had abandoned them, a mother who was sick and poor and could not take care of them. They knew sadness. They knew brokenness. And now, almost eight months in, they are now part of our family. And now, my little boy who used to sit in the dirt in Africa and just cry because he couldn't express himself is the clown of our family. He smiles. He tells jokes. He's so happy. Abe told me that when we left the first time, because we had to come back to the U.S. and finalize some things before we could go back for their court trip in July, so there was a few months of interval in there, he told me he was so mad that he went back into his bedroom this communal bedroom, and took all of his clothes up and threw them in a pile. 
because he was mad that he couldn't come be with his family that had been promised to him. These, these people, these women, these disciples, they felt like orphans. What did the resurrection prove to them? That Jesus will keep all of his promises. That they have a family. That he would not leave them as orphans, but had made them sons and daughters. And one day our brother will return with his father and make us perfectly new. But while we wait, our hope is in the good news. And the good news is we get God back because of Jesus. And so my brothers and sisters... Our mourning has been turned into joy. Our unmet and nagging longings are exceedingly fulfilled. Our fears and disillusionment are erased. And our separation is forever replaced with union and expectation. That is the hope of the resurrection. May God's spirit confirm these things in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now by the power of your spirit, take your word and transform our minds. Open our eyes to see and transform our paltry little withered hearts and cause them to beat with hope and expectation that what has been done for us on the cross and through your resurrection is the foundation of our hope. So help us, we pray, to walk like these disciples with full joy because you have united us to yourself and to the Father. And you have given us a sure expectation that you are and will make all things new. So on this resurrection day, glorify yourself by increasing the joy of your disciples. We, your people. And we pray these things in faith and humble confidence.